We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we're there in Luke chapter 13, of course, and we are continuing our uh, study, our preaching series through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And tonight we find ourselves in Luke chapter 13, and we're looking at this uh, parable of the barren fig tree. And, uh, you know, I, when, when it comes to preaching, and over the last 12 years, you do, you do a lot of different types of, of preaching. I do uh, expository preaching, of course, which is what we're doing now, and I do a lot of topical sermons and um, uh, a lot of different, different one-point outlines and all sorts of different things that, that we do, but I don't, I don't know about you, and, and, and I, I'm even maybe afraid to ask, but uh, for me, my favorite style of preaching, it, what I enjoy the most is just these verse-by-verse, verse, just taking a passage of Scripture and just dissecting it and learning from it and applying it uh, to, to our lives. So I don't know if you're learning, but I'm learning, and uh, I, that's what we're just going to continue to do here. And of course, we're only going to look at just a few verses, but that's because it deals with this very specific uh, parable of um, the fig tree. And uh, when it comes to parables, they can be a little difficult sometimes to outline, so I'll just give this to you up front. You can write this down if you'd like. Um, the way we're going to cover this parable, the same way that we've covered other parables in the past, and we'll do it under these headings. First, we'll talk about the illustration, then we'll talk about the explanation, and then we'll end with an application or several applications. And of course, a parable is in and of itself an illustration. It's a uh, symbolic story, not a literal story. You've heard me say this before. I'm sure you've heard other preachers say this before, that a parable is a heavenly story, uh, excuse me, a, a, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And here we have this parable of the fig tree. So we'll start tonight with the illustration, and it's pretty straightforward. Look there in verse number 6. The Bible says, He spake also this parable, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. So we... Jesus begins to tell the story, and he begins by telling us about a barren tree. There was a certain man who had a fig tree planted in a vineyard. He went to seek fruit thereon, and the Bible tells us he found none. So in verse 6, we see the barren tree, but I'd like you to notice that in verses 7 and 8, we see a patient keeper, a patient keeper of the vineyard. Verse 7, then said he unto the dresser of the vineyard, the dresser of the vineyard, the keeper of the vineyard, this is the, the gardener, this is the farmer, this is a guy who is working out in the field. Then said he, the householder, the man that owns the vineyard, the man that owns the property, unto the dresser of the vineyard, behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. And notice he says to him, cut it down. Why cumbereth it uh, the ground? And that word cumbereth or cumber means to draw nutrients and to be a burden on the ground without producing anything. And, and what he's saying is here we've got a, a spot on the ground where this tree is, is rooted and it's taking nutrients, it's taking water, and it's not producing. So he says, we need to get rid of this tree. This is a, a, an unfruitful tree. We need to cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? He said, why is it burdening the ground? We could cut it down and put another tree there that would produce or just cut it down and free up the nutrients and the resources and the waters for the other trees to be able to uh, produce more fruit. Notice verse 8. We see this patient dresser of the vineyard or this patient keeper. And he answering said unto him, this is the keeper speaking to the householder. He says, let it alone this year also till I shall dig about it and dung it. So he says, look, let, let's, let's just work. Let's not give up on this tree. He said, let me dig around the tree. He said, I, I want to dig kind of a trench around the tree. Let me put some fresh dung. And uh, you probably know what dung is. And uh, he said, let me dung the tree and, and dig it. And, and let's try to help this tree. Uh, and let's just be patient with the tree. So we see there, of course, in verse 6, the barren tree. We see there in verses 7 and 8, a patient keeper. And then I want you to notice in verse 9, we see the ultimate goal. Notice what the householder responds to the dresser of the vineyard. He says in verse 9, uh, and if it bear fruit, uh, excuse me, this is the, the dresser of the vineyard speaking to the householder. If it bear fruit, well, he says, and if not, then after that, 
thou shalt cut it down. So the householder wants to just cut the tree down, and he says, give me a year. Let me dig around it. Let me dung it. Let's see if we can get help this tree. Let's help it uh, pr- uh, produce fruit. And he says, if it bear fruit well, and if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. And I want you to notice that the ultimate goal of a tree um, in a vineyard is to produce fruit. If you plant a fig tree, the purpose of that tree is to produce figs. And you might be patient with that tree, you might try to help that tree, but ultimately, if it does not produce, there's only one thing to do, and it's to cut it down. So that's what we see here in this parable that Jesus tells. He tells us about a barren tree, he tells us about a patient keeper, and he tells us about the ultimate goal of a tree, which is to produce fruit. So that's the illustration, all right? Now let's talk about the explanation, and that was really short, all right? Uh, but we're going to spend some time on these other things, especially the application, so don't get too excited. Uh, we, we're in the second point now, but they're not equally, uh, we're not going to spend the, the equal amount of time on each point. The illustration is pretty basic. A barren tree, a patient keeper, an ultimate goal. Now let's talk about the explanation. What, what, what does this mean and what is Jesus getting at? I want you to notice that there are some characters in this parable. Whenever you study a parable, it's good to try to do your best to figure out what the different players are, the different characters in the parable. And we see here, and I'd like you to notice, first of all, the characters of this parable. First, we see the certain man. Notice again, verse 6. He spake also this parable. Number one, we see the first character is a certain man. This certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. So it's a certain man with a vineyard. It's a householder, a man that owns the house, the property. And when we look at this parable, the character of this certain man is a representation of God the Father. And if you're taking notes, you can jot that down, or maybe write, if you don't mind writing in your Bible next to a certain man, you can put a little arrow and write the words God the Father. That is the representation of the certain man. That's the first character we see in this parable. Then there's a second character or representation we see in the parable, and it's the fig tree itself. Notice again there in verse 6, he spake also this parable, a certain man is the first character. And then the second one is this, who had, or the Bible tells us, had a fig tree planted. You say, what does this fig tree represent? The fig tree represents or pictures God's people. And I want to word it that way for a reason, and you'll see that when we get to the application. But if you're taking notes or if you want to just write in the margin of the Bible, right next to the fig tree there, you can uh, put a little arrow and write God's people. So the certain man pictures God the Father. The fig tree uh, pictures God's people. And then verse 7 there, we see the third character in this parable, and it is the dresser of the vineyard. Again, verse 7, Then said he unto, number 3, the dresser of the vineyard. And who is this representation in this parable? And this is God's Son, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to jot that down, we've got God the Father is a certain man, the fig tree is God's people, and the dresser of the vineyard is God's Son. Those are the characters. Now notice the complication in this parable. What is, what is the problem that is happening here? And I want you to notice that the problem is that the certain man who pictures or represents God the Father is seeking something. What is it that God is seeking? Look, look down again, verse 6. And he spake also this parable, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and notice what the Bible says, he came and sought fruit thereon. What is it that the householder, the certain man, the owner of the vineyard, what is it that God the Father, when he looks down at God's people, what is it that he's looking for? He is seeking fruit. He's looking for fruit, and he came and saw fruit thereon. Notice again, verse 7, And he said unto the dress of the vineyard, Behold, these three years I come. Notice what he's looking for, seeking fruit. He said, I came to this fig tree seeking fruit on this fig tree. What is it that God is seeking from this tree? He is seeking fruit. What is it that God is getting from this tree? Notice the last part of verse 6, And found none. Notice verse 7, Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree. Notice this little phrase, And find none. Unfortunately, oftentimes when God comes to his people seeking fruit, 
He is seeking fruit, but he is getting none. He's getting nothing. He says, I've come to this tree. I've come to this tree. And he says, I found none. He says, I find none. He said, I'm not getting what I want. So we see what God is seeking. We see what God is getting. And then I want you to notice what Jesus highlights here is what God is wasting. Look again at the last part of verse 7, Luke 13 and verse 7. Why cumbereth it the ground? He says, look, I am investing in this tree. I planted this tree. I gave it a plot of ground. He said, we're making sure it's getting water. We're making sure it's getting nutrients. We're making sure it's getting dung and and fed. We, We are investing our resources and time and energy into this tree. And he says, I'm seeking fruit. I'm getting none. And he says, I'm wasting my resources. He says, cut the thing down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And you need to understand that God is an investor. And God is investing into his people, but God does not invest into his people without the expectation that there is something that he wants in return, all right? So we see the characters, and we see the complication. I'm taking the time to really dissect this for you because I'm going to make several applications, and I want you to understand as we go move through those applications how those fit into this parable and into these categories. We've got the characters, the certain man, with the vineyard, God the Father, the fig tree, God's people, the dresser of his vineyard, God's son. We see what God is seeking, fruit. We see what God is getting, none. We see what God is wasting, his resources. Then I want you to notice thirdly tonight, the conclusion of the parable. Where does this thing end? Notice there in verse 8, And he answered and said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. What is the end of this, what is the conclusion of this thing? It is to dig it and dung it. He says, let me dig it and dung it to see if it'll bear fruit. And then he says, if it doesn't bear fruit, then I'll cut it down. Verse 9, and if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. Now I'm going to transition into the application, which is where we're going to spend the majority of the time tonight. But before we do that, let me just say this. In fact, do me a favor. Keep your place there in Luke 13. That's our text for tonight. But go, if you would, to the book of Isaiah. In the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter number 5. If you find the major prophets, they're all clustered together. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Or if you start from the center, you're more than likely following the book of Psalms. You have Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. Let me just... We're, we're, we're going to get into the application, but before I do that, let me just speak on this. There are some wrong assumptions about this parable. This is a parable that people often try to use to preach heresy, to preach bad doctrine. And just be aware of this. It, you're, you're never, it, it's never good ground. You're never on, on a good uh, foothold. When somebody tries to teach you a, a doctrinal position from a parable, always be wary of that. Parables do not teach us doctrine. They should affirm doctrine. They should uh, confirm what we already know. But you should not take a major doctrinal position and have a parable as your proof text. Our doctrinal positions must come from the clear stated teaching of the Word of God. And a parable is not that. A parable is just a story. It's symbolism. It means certain things. Sometimes we're told what it means. Sometimes we're not told what it means. When we're not told what it means, we've got to compare spiritual things with spiritual to try to understand what it could be. But let me just help you out with with some things. Here's some wrong assumptions that people make regarding this parable. They'll look at this tree that is supposed to produce fruit, and they'll say that the fruit is the evidence of somebody's salvation. And they'll say, well, the fruit is supposed to be uh, good works and the fruit is supposed to be, uh, uh, you know, the fact that we're showing that we're saved. And they'll use a parable out of context to prove this point. And then you ask them for a a reference to kind of uh, prove that from the Bible. And then they'll take another verse out of context to prove the other verse out of context. You say, what do you mean? They'll, They'll say... This, this tree, see, God expects fruit, and the fruit is the good works. The fruit is us doing good things. And you'll say, well, you know, prove that from the Bible. And then they'll say, well, you know, the Bible, Jesus said, by their fruits you shall know them. And that is a verse that people love to take out of context, that people love to use 
to prove this doctrine. But that, again, is a statement that's taken out of context because when Jesus said, by their fruit you shall know them, he was talking about false prophets. He was talking about preachers and prophets, and he says, a fruit is a tree is known by his fruit, and if you want to know what kind of tree it is, look at what they're producing. By their fruits you shall know them. But people decided that they want to make this, the, you know, every time you come to the Bible and you see fruit, then it must be good works, it must be somebody living right and doing right and doing these things. And you say, where does the confusion come in? And here's the thing, the, con- the confusing is, th- is there because people are trying to preach heresy out of the Word of God. But of course, there's always a little bit of truth that gets mixed in. And what they'll teach you is this. They'll say, well, the Bible says in Ephesians that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. These are all attitudes that we should have as a Christian is what they'll say. So that's the fruit. But please understand something. The Bible tells us that that is the fruit of the Spirit. It does not tell us that that is the fruit of the Christian. I've known many of Christians that have not had love or joy or peace or long-suffering or temperance or any of those things. You say, why? Because being a Christian does not simply produce that in your life. In fact, in that same passage in Ephesians, he says, if you walk in the Spirit, you're going to have the fruit of the Spirit. But if you walk in the flesh, he gives you a whole other list of things you're going to do. Like adultery and drunkenness, those are the fruits of walking in the flesh. And then when we're filled with the Spirit of God and we have the Holy Spirit's uh, uh, filling in our lives, when we're walking in the Spirit, we won't fulfill the lust of flesh. And yes, the Christian who walks in the Spirit has the fruit of the Spirit. But understand something, that's the fruit of the Spirit. That's not the fruit of the Christian. You say, what's the fruit of the Christian? Well, here's, here's what you need to say. Everything brings forth after its own kind. You say, well, why does the Holy Spirit bring forth love, joy, peace, long-suffering? You know why? Because the Holy Spirit is love. God is love. Because the Holy Spirit is joy. Because the Holy Spirit is long-suffering, is temperance. The Holy Spirit is all of those things. So when we're walking in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is producing those things in us. But understand something. I'm not love. You're not joy. When you produce, you don't produce love, you don't produce joy, you just produce another one of you. You say, what does that mean? Here's what it means. Cats produce cats, dogs produce dogs, and Christians produce other Christians. That's the fruit. Look, when God's looking down at his people and he's asking for fruit, he says, I want fruit. He says, I want figs from the fig tree. I want the fig tree to produce more figs. I want God's people to produce more of God's people. So one wrong assumption about this parable is that the fruit is in reference to good work. Now look, I'm all for the fruit of the Spirit, but please understand this. You can't expect that every Christian would have the fruit of the Spirit because not every Christian is walking in the Spirit. Not every Christian is full of the Spirit of God. And if that were true, then why would Paul tell us things like, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God? Why would Paul command things like, quench not the Holy Spirit of God? You know why Paul said, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God? Because a lot of Christians are grieving the Holy Spirit of God. You know why Paul said, do not quench the Holy Spirit of God? Because a lot of Christians are quenching the Holy Spirit of God. So one assumption is that the fruit here is somehow evidence to somebody's salvation or that they're saved because they have those things. And by the way, you know, if, if you look at the life of somebody and they have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, they have those things, that's not necessarily proof of their salvation. That's proof that they're walking in the Spirit. And if somebody doesn't have it, that's not proof that they're not saved. It's just proof that they're walking in the flesh. So we have the fruit. That's a wrong assumption that people will make with a parable like this one. But then there's another assumption. This is one I want to deal with even, even more tonight. Is this idea of when the Bible says, cut it down. Two times in this parable, we are told that if this tree does not produce fruit, we're going to cut it down. Cut the thing down. And people will take this parable to try to teach that somebody can lose their salvation. And they'll start with the wrong assumption that the fruit is the proof of your salvation, and they'll say, see, if, if, if God comes to you and you're not producing fruit, he's going to cut you down. He, that means you're going to lose your salvation. 
That means you're going to die and go to hell. Well, listen to me. The Bible clearly teaches, not through parables, but through clear statements, that we have eternal life, that we are secure in Christ, that you cannot lose your salvation. So another wrong assumption here is this, when it says, cut it down, people will say, see, you're going to lose your salvation. And people will literally say, you know, I don't believe in eternal security. And you'll ask them, show me a proof in the Bible, and they'll take you to a place like this. See, God's going to cut it down. It's like, first of all, this is a parable. Where's a clear statement? Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to use the Bible. You know, the best way to teach the Bible is to teach the Bible. The best way to understand the Bible is to try to understand the Bible. And I'm going to teach you from the Bible some applications that actually apply to this parable, and it'll be clear to you what this phrase, cut it down, and what the phrase, fruit, means. So let's talk about the applications. We talked about the illustration, a barren tree, a patient keeper, an ultimate goal. We talked about the explanation. We saw the characters of the parable. The certain man is God the Father. The fig tree is God's people. The dresser is God's son. We saw the complication in the parable, what God is seeking, what God is getting, what God is wasting. We saw the conclusion of the parable. You dig it and you dung it to see if it'll bear fruit. And if it does not bear fruit, then you cut it down. What does this mean? How is this applied? Well, first of all, I'm going to give you three applications to this parable because you got to understand something. The Bible is a deep book, and oftentimes you can have more than one application. Now, I do believe that there is a primary application, and the primary application is the first application I'm going to give you tonight. I believe that's the primary application, but I do also believe that there are secondary and, and, and other applications that can be applied to this parable that we can learn from, and I'll give those to you tonight. The first application, you say, what is this fig tree about? It's about the nation of Israel. And by the way, let me just say this, because you might think, that's not what I was thinking. I know that's not what you were thinking, but I'm going to prove it to you from the Bible. Now, I do believe that there are other applications, but I will tell you, I believe that the primary application, the reason Jesus gave the parable, was because of the nation of Israel. If you think about the fact, as we've been traveling through the Gospel of Luke in its context, what has Jesus been in the midst of right now? He's been fighting the Pharisees, fighting the lawyers, fighting the scribes, and they've been fighting him back. And he gives this parable for a reason. Now, I'm not going to run the verses tonight. I'm just going to go to Isaiah 5 and then another passage in Matthew. But let me just say this. If you run the verses throughout the Bible, you'll find that a fig tree is often used as an illustration about the nation of Israel. But notice here, Isaiah 5 and verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. Okay, so notice Isaiah chapter 5. We have Isaiah. Isaiah himself is about to give us a parable in Isaiah chapter 5. And he's using a vineyard as an example in this parable. Remember, the fig tree was planted in the vineyard. It's planted in a vineyard. Isaiah 5 and verse 1. Now will I sing unto my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. Notice verse 2. And he fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vines, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, that it should bring forth what? Fruit. And it brought forth wild grapes. So I want you to notice Isaiah tells us about a vineyard, and he says, look, it was planted in a choice location, in a fruitful hill. He said he fenced it. He put a fence around it to make sure that wild animals would not just come onto the vineyard and be able to eat uh, uh, of the plants before they were able to produce fruit. He says he gathered out the stones thereof. He went through and made sure that the soil was clean and that, that, that it would be soft and there was no stones or anything to be able to keep these uh, plants from getting the nutrients and the water that they needed. He said he planted it with the choicest vine. He didn't go uh, cheap on the, the, the things he planted. He got, you know, the nice, organic, best quality vines. He got the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine press, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes. He said, I want this vineyard to produce fruit, but it brought forth wild grapes. Unusable. Look at verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge. This was Isaiah speaking to 
the Jews of his day. He says, I judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. He said, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? He said, what could I have done more to get fruit from this vineyard? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, he said, when I looked that it should bring forth fruit, he says, brought it forth wild grapes. He said, why did it bring forth wild grapes? I mean, what did I do wrong? Is what he's saying. Verse 5, and now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. Notice what he says. He says, I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up. He said, I'm going to remove the fence around it so that the wild animals will come and eat it. And break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. I'm going to break down the wall so that that would keep people from walking on it, and now people are going to walk on it, it will get trodden down. Verse 6, I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns, and I will command the clouds that, the, uh, that they rain no rain upon it. He says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, don't miss it, is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his pleasant plant, and he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. So he says, look, he gives us this whole parable of a vineyard, and then he tells us at the end, he said, I'm talking about the nation of Israel. That's what he said in verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. He said, this is an illustration of the house of Israel. So when he says there in verse 5, I will take away the hedge, I will break down the wall thereof, I will lay it waste, nor, uh, he said, I'm not going to dig it, I'm not going to allow rain to come upon it. What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. He said, I'm going to cut it down. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm done with it. He says, the nation of Israel was like a fig tree in a vineyard, or it was like a vineyard. He said, I put work into it. I put resources into it. I built a hedge, and I built a wall, and I removed the stones, and I made sure it was watered. I gave it everything. He said, what more could have been done to this vineyard? But it refused to produce fruit. So he said, I'm going to cut it down. Now, Isaiah is not the only place we see this illustration. Go to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, in the New Testament, the first book in the New Testament, Matthew 21. I'll show you another parable that Jesus gave that sounds pretty much exactly like, I mean, not exactly like, there's a few additional details, but it's, it, it, it sounds pretty much like Isaiah 5. Matthew 21 and verse 33, here another parable. There was a certain householder, right, a certain man, which planted a vineyard. Now, where he saw in Isaiah 5, what's the vineyard? The nation of Israel. Doesn't this sound just like Isaiah 5? And hedged it round about, and dig the wine press in it, and built a tower, and let it out to husbandmen, and went out into a far, and went into a far country. Verse 34, And when the time of the fruit drew near, when it was time for it to produce fruit, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. You say, what is God looking for? Because you say, I understand, okay, the certain man, the householder is God the Father, and the fig tree is God's people. And in this instance, when we're talking about the Old Testament nation of Israel, the Old Testament nation of Israel truly were God's people at that time. And you say, what is God looking for when he was looking for fruit? Well, remember, the nation of Israel was supposed to be a nation that would shine forth the light, and it was supposed to bring converts into the, uh, the, the religion of Jehovah God, they were supposed to bring converts into the nation of Israel and have people convert into uh, becoming the people of God. I mean, they, they were supposed to be evangelical, uh, an evangelical nation that, that converted others. And we saw that with Jonah. We see that at other times when people get converted and brought. But by and large... They took the blessings of God, they took the resources of God, they took the help of God, and they actually, instead of reproducing themselves and other people, instead they developed this attitude that said, we're better than other people, and they refuse to produce fruit. So God looks at this vineyard, and he says, I want to receive the fruits thereof, and I'm not getting any fruit. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go through this entire parable, because there's a lot of details, but let me just give you 
the synopsis real quickly. If you continue to read in the parable, you'll notice that the husbandman of the vineyard, when the, when the householder, he, he sent servants to find fruit. The Bible says that they killed the servants, which is a representation of the, of the Jews and the nation of Israel killing the prophets of God. And then eventually in the parable, he says, I will send my son. They will reverence my son. And they decided in the parable, they said, let us kill the son. And they slew the son. You say, what is that picture? The Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that God sent prophet after prophet after prophet, they killed prophet. Then he said, I'll send my son. The Bible says he came into his own and his own received him not. They killed him. Notice how the parable ends, verse 43. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you. Matthew 21, 43, Jesus is speaking to the Jews. And he, and he just gave them this parable, which, which they should have been able to identify, that it sounds a lot like Isaiah 5. And he says, look, God is going to take away the vineyard and give it to other men that will bring the fruits thereof. That's the whole point of the parable. And then Jesus, Matthew 21, 43, makes the application to the Jews of his day. He says, therefore, say, unto, say, uh, say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you, taken from the nation of Israel, and given to a nation, another nation. You say, what nation? A nation of Gentiles, and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. He says, I'm going to take it from you, Israel, Jews, the nation of Israel, and I'm going to give it unto another nation. You say, what nation? A new nation of Gentile believers, a peculiar people. You say, why? Because God is looking. You know what his ultimate goal is? He wants fruit. I'm going to give it unto another nation, bringing forth fruit. So we see that that is the first, and honestly, that is the primary application to this parable. It's about the fact that the nation of Israel is this tree, that will not produce fruit. And it's interesting because in the story, Jesus says, the householder says, I came to this fruit for three years and it won't produce fruit. And it's interesting that we're told that the life, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was about three and a half years. So for three years, the, the certain man is coming to the street says, it won't produce fruit. It won't produce fruit. It won't produce fruit. And, and, and the decision is, if it refuses to produce fruit, we're going to cut the thing down. So with that understanding that phrase cut it down in Luke 13 7 and Luke 13 9 is not referring to somebody losing their salvation but instead is referring to the Jews losing their position as God's people and being replaced by the Gentiles and the local New Testament church you say, why? Because they failed to produce. And that's why we have an old covenant and a new covenant. You say, that sounds like replacement theology. Well, it sounds like replacement theology because that's what it is. Yeah. He said, I'm going to cut this tree down. Why cumbereth it the ground? He said, I'm tired of putting resources in this tree. He said, I'm going to give the kingdom unto another nation. And later on in Luke, we'll see it, where he tells the Jews, he says, you know, you're going to be shocked when you, the kingdom of heaven when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sitting with Gentiles from the east and the west, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. So we see that this parable, the application, is the nation of Israel. They produce, they, they, they failed to produce fruit, so they got cut down. He got rid of them, and he gave the kingdom unto another nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Now, I want you to go back to Luke chapter 13. Look at verse 9 again. Luke chapter 13 and verse 9. Notice this little phrase, and if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. The cut it down is not a reference. To, no, nobody lost their salvation here, but the Jews did lose their covenant. They lost their place, and a new covenant was made a new testament in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. A new people was raised up. There was a change. Now instead of having a nation serve as a national congregation, do you know the Bible says that the children of Israel in the wilderness were called the, the congregation in the wilderness? They're the congregation. They're the church in the wilderness is what they're referred to in Acts. 
So instead of a nation representing the people of God and that nation having the job of taking the gospel out to other nations, now that was translated or transformed into local assemblies. And those local assemblies are to reach their communities with the gospel. And instead of one nation, there's just local assemblies everywhere. So we see that the first application is that to the nation of Israel. But I do want you to notice that there's a second application that could be made, and that is to local New Testament churches. You say, how, how can that be? Well, remember, Paul tells us in Romans that, look, if God did not hesitate removing, cutting off the natural branches, you better believe he's not going to hesitate to cut you off who's been engrafted in. So there's a second application to a New Testament church. Go to Revelation chapter 2, if you would. Revelation chapter 2, last book in the New Testament, should be fairly easy to find. Revelation chapter 2. You say, how does this apply to a local church? Let me explain it to you. Pretty much the same way it applies to the nation of Israel, except now in the context of a local church. And Revelation chapter 2, verses 4, 5, and uh, this passage here uh, really outlines it well. We could go to other places, but we'll just look at it in this one place. Revelation 2 and verse 4, this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to the seven churches of Asia. He's speaking to the first church, the church of Ephesus. Revelation 2, 4, nevertheless, I have someone against thee. This is Jesus speaking to the church at Ephesus. The thee there is a reference to the church at Ephesus, a local church. He says, nevertheless, I have someone against thee. Notice what he says. He says, because thou hast left thy first love. Jesus says, because he just got done saying things he liked about them. But he said, let me tell you what I don't like about you. That's what Jesus says. He says, you know what I have against you is the fact that you have left your first love. He said, what are we supposed to do about that? Verse 5, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent. He said, remember how it used to be. I want you to repent. Notice, he says, and do the first works. So they left their first love. And Jesus says, if you would repent, you would go back to do your first works. You say, now, what is this referring to, your first love and your first works? It is a reference to soul winning. And I don't have time to develop this for you. I preached the entire sermons on it before. But let me just say this. No matter how you slice it, first works is a reference to soul winning. Because it could be referring, if you're talking about the first work that we're supposed to do, well, what is a local church supposed to do? The Great Commission. There's three steps to the Great Commission. Teaching all nations or preaching the gospel. Baptizing them. And... And, uh, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you, discipleship. So we have a three-step commission we've been given. What's the first work? To go out and preach the gospel to every creature. Amen. You know, so when you think about it in the sense of a sequence, what is the first work of a church? It's to preach the gospel. What if you think about it in the sense of a priority? Well, the first work is to preach the gospel. Amen. Because there's no point of baptizing them if they're going to die and go to hell. There's no point in discipling them if they're going to die and go to hell. So no matter how you slice it, if you want to know what what the first works are, the first work is soul winning. Whether it's sequence, the Great Commission, it comes first. Whether it's priority, it comes first. Because if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. So the reference here is to a church who has left their first love, who's not doing their first works. Jesus says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else, or else what? Notice verse five. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. He's gonna remove the candlestick. What does that mean? Well, according to Revelation 1 and verse 20, you don't have to turn there, it's just one chapter over, the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. The candlestick in Revelation 1 and 2 is a picture or a representation of the church. The seven candlesticks were the seven churches of Asia. And here he's telling the, candle, he's telling the church, which is represented by the candlestick, he says, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick. Say, what does that mean? That's like telling a fig tree, I'm going to cut you down. You say, what is that? What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. I'm going to remove your status as a church. You're going to, I'm going to remove the candlestick. I used to have a pastor who would say, 
you're going to lose a franchise. And, and what he's saying is this. Look, you, this is a local New Testament church, and you know what I want from you? I want fruit. I like, he says, there's some things I like about you, but you know what I don't like about you? Is that you've left your first love, is that you've left your first works, and he says, and if you don't repent and get back to your first works, I'm going to remove thy candlestick. What is he saying? He's saying, look, I only acknowledge a church as a church when it's fulfilling the Great Commission, and don't skip the first work of soul winning. And I'm going to tell you something. There are many locations today that call themselves churches, that look like churches, that act like churches, and Jesus says, you've lost the franchise. There's no candlestick. You might get together on a weekly basis. You might have somebody stand up and teach or preach. But if you're not a soul-winning church, if you're not evangelizing, if you're not reaching people with the gospel, he says, you've lost the candlestick. He said, I will remove that candlestick. So in the same way that God looked at the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and said, you refuse to produce fruit, I'm going to cut you down. He looks at local New Testament churches and says, you refuse to produce fruit, I'm going to remove the candlestick. You're not going to be a church anymore. I'm not going to acknowledge you as a church. So I want you to notice that the phrase cut it down in the second application, like the first application, was not referring to someone losing their salvation. But instead, in the first application, it was the nation of Israel losing their status as God's people, God's work being done on earth through them. And in Revelation, when we see it for a local church, when they get cut down or they remove the candlestick, nobody lost their salvation. Those people are still saved. But the church is no longer going to be acknowledged by God as a church He's going to remove the candlestick. What does that mean? That means he's going, to, he's going to now begin to remove his resources and his blessings. And look, I'm here to tell you, in Sacramento, over the years, in this city, and I'm not talking about recently, although you can apply it recently, but decades ago, there have been churches in this city that were soul-winning, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, soul-winning churches, baptizing churches, preaching the Word of God, teaching people to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And during that time, when they were reaching people with the gospel, discipling people, creating uh, uh, and multiplying and having fruit, the blessing of God was upon them. They were reaching people and they were growing. But you know what? They got a point when they took the emphasis off the first works. And they put the emphasis on music. Nothing against music. We love music. But let's make sure all these musicians are soul winners. And and they put the emphasis on on, on activities. And they put the emphasis on other things. And they stopped soul winning. And they forgot about soul winning. And they stopped reaching people. And, you know, slowly it got to the point where God said, that's not even a church anymore. I'm going to ruin my candlestick. And, you know, those churches have died. And you say, what happened? You know what's funny? And I won't take the time to do it. But you can go around this auditorium and talk to people in this church who say, oh, yeah, 20 years ago, I went to this church. 30 years ago, I went to the soul winning church. That church is dead now. But you know where that Christian is? Here. You say, why? Because God invested them here. Because God is an investor. Because God will look down at a church and say, why cumber it in the ground? It's taking up nutrients. It's taking up resources. It's using up my blessings. I'm going to cut that thing down. I'm going to, bl- I'm going to plant another tree. I'm going to call it Verity Baptist Church. Yeah. I'm going to plant a tree, and I'm going to invest into that tree, and I'm going to bring people to that tree, and I'm going to resource that tree and give it power and strength. I'm going to help that tree. Why? Because God, you say, why does God bless Verity Baptist Church? Because we're special? No. Because we're producing fruit. Yeah. And the minute we stop, we'll lose blessing of God, like the children of Israel and like any other church. So cut it down is not a reference to somebody losing their salvation. It is a reference to a church ceasing to be a church. Cut it down is not a reference to somebody losing their salvation. It is a reference to the children of Israel being replaced because they fail to produce fruit. Let me give you a third application and we'll be done. Go back to Luke chapter 13, verse 8. And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also. Luke 13, 8. Till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if I bear fruit, and if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. 
After that, thou shalt cut it down. I say, what, what can this parable be applied to? Well, number one, it's applied to the nation of Israel. That's the primary application. Number two, it can also be applied to a local New Testament church because if a church fails to keep its first love, by the way, the Bible says, and if some have compassion making a difference, that's your first love. Amen. Pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. When a church fails to keep its first love and continue its first works, it can lose the candlestick. It can be cut down as a tree. But I do want you to notice thirdly tonight that there's yet another application that can be made to this parable, and it is this, of the individual believer. Of the individual believer. Because you know what God wants from you? Fruit. John chapter 15, would you go there? John chapter 15. Now in John chapter 15, I want to warn you, we have yet another parable. And this is yet another parable that people like to turn into proof text for Losing your salvation. You know, one of the things, you say, Pastor Matt, do you believe in eternal security? I believe in eternal security. I mean, I will ne- I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that it, there's not an ounce of doubt in my body that the Bible teaches eternal security. Amen. You say, why is that? Because the Bible clearly teaches it. But you know what gives me even more confidence that the Bible teaches it? Is that the people who fight against it don't have a clear verse. Right. Right. They want to keep taking you some parable. And tell you, well, here, this parable might think if you consider it this way and look at it this way, it might teach you you can lose your salvation. John 15 is a parable. But now we're not talking about the nation of Israel. Now we're not talking about a local New Testament church. Now we're talking about individual believers. Notice John 15 and verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. I am the true vine. Again, this is symbolic. It's a parable. Jesus is not literally a vine. I am the true vine. And my father is the husbandman, right? The father is the householder. He's the certain man that owns a vineyard. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch, what are the branches? That's you and I. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, notice what he says, he taketh away. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. I'm a little confused. Does that mean you can lose your salvation? Well, well, listen. If in the first application, cut it down did not mean you can lose your salvation. Nobody lost their salvation. Even when the nation of Israel lost the covenant, anybody in the nation of Israel that was saved, they were saved, period. If in the second application, a church lost its, its, its right as a church, it lost the, candles, uh, the, the candlestick, Even if a church dies, the members of that church that are saved, they're still saved. They might be resourced somewhere else for God's use and God's work, but they're still saved. Why would you think that in this third illustration, now you can lose your salvation? This is a parable. He says, look, here's how it works. Branches that don't produce fruit, you get rid of it. Jesus is not speaking... Spiritually here, remember, a parable is an earthly story with a spiritual truth. Jesus was speaking to an agricultural society. They would have known if you have a tree and it has a dead branch, a branch that got injured, it got cut, there's a problem with it, it's not getting the nutrients, it's not producing fruit. What do you do with that branch? You cut it off. Because it's using up nutrients, because it's, it's cumbering the tree, it's burning the tree. If the goal is to produce fruit, when you got a branch that is broken, that is dead, that is withered, you cut it off. Every branch in me that beareth no fruit, not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it. What do you do with a, 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 a branch that is bearing fruit? You know what you do? You purge it. You trim it. You clip it. You pull back the things that are burdening that branch so that that branch will produce more fruit. You say, why? Because God is heavily investing and heavily interested in fruit. That's what he wants. He wants you to produce fruit. He wants his church to produce fruit. He wants the nation of Israel to produce. That's what he wants. That's what he's always wanted, fruit. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Look at verse 5. We won't take too much time with this parable. I've preached on it before, but look at verse 5. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, notice, he is cast forth 
as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burnt. Now, this is where people go off the rails. They're like, that's hell. Look, just because the Bible uses the word fire is not referring to hell. There's lots of other places the Bible uses the word fire, and it's not referring to hell. How about the 120 in the upper room when they had tongues of fire upon their head? Were they in hell? It's a parable. He's speaking to an agricultural society. He says, look, if you got a tree with a dead branch, what do you do with it? You cut it down. And here's what they would understand. It's useless. Because if it's dead, if it's withered, you can't even use it to, to put in a fireplace. It's dead. You're not going to use it to, 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 to create. You're going to burn it up because it's dead, but it's not going to produce anything for you. Just get rid of it. When he says cast them into the fire. He's not talking about going to hell. Here's what he's saying. There are some Christians that God has no use for. And people don't like me saying that or don't like the Bible teaching on that. But look, the Bible is really clear about that. I won't take the time to take you to the passages. But there's another parable in which Jesus makes a similar assertion. And here's what he says. He says, ye are the salt of the earth. And he says, but if the salt has lost its savor, he says, it is you, he says, it's worthless. It's useless. He said, throw it. Throw it away. Let people trot it underfoot. So what is it that the Bible is teaching? Here's what the Bible is teaching. When an individual believer fails to produce fruit, God has no use for you. That doesn't mean you're not saved. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It just means that God's on a mission to get fruit, and you're useless if you're withered away. And, and he says, I'm going to stop investing my resources into you. This does not mean that you'll lose your salvation. It just means that God stops investing in them. Because I, I'm here to tell you something. The Christian that does not eventually produce fruit, they don't lose their salvation. But I'm here to tell you something. They don't make it in the Christian life. They wither away and they die. Because faith without works is dead. And faith without the first works is going to die. That doesn't mean you lose your... That's another verse if you want to take out of context. That doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. It just means that God's not going to invest in you. That God's not going to help you. That God's not going to... Look, and, and it might... You know, you could even make the argument, God may just kill you. I can't believe you would say that. You're really trying to get people to show up to the soul when you push, Pastor. <laughs> Look, you show up at your own, you know, your, your own expense there. But throughout the Bible, you see that God, I mean, go to James, where the Bible says, hey, bring the elders of the church together and pray for them that are sick. He's like, you know, that they may confess their sins. Sometimes people are sick. You know, let's go back to last Sunday night sermon, okay? Sometimes people are sick because they're sick. But sometimes people are sick because they're not right with God. I didn't say every time someone is sick. Remember last Sunday night's sermon? I didn't say every time somebody's sick that they've done something wrong. Sometimes they're Job. But sometimes people are sick because they're not right with God. How about this? In 1 Corinthians, when Paul talks about the fact that people were taking the Lord's Supper unworthily, and he said, some of you sleep. That God killed some of you because you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Here's what I'm telling you. You say, I want God's blessing. I, so do I. I want God's help. So do I. I mean, I, I want God to bless me uh, in my health. I want God to bless me in my relationship. I want God to bless me with my children. I want God to bless me with my spouse. I want God to bless me with my finances. I want God to bless me uh, in all these areas of my life. Praise God. So do I. You say, how do I get God's blessing? Become as useful to God as possible. When God says, hey, here's a guy who's using his, his business or his career or his work to not only provide for his family, which is what I've asked him to do, but also to invest in the work of God. He said, let me, let me help his business. You know what happens? He blesses your business, then you, get, then you forget about God. And then God says, well, I don't have to bless your business anymore because I'm not getting any fruit. You say, God was really helping my marriage when we were here. We're so, everything's good. But then we stopped soul winning and stopped coming to church and now everything's going downhill. Look, because God is interested in one thing, fruit. That's what he wants from you. 
That's, that, that, that's why there's one prayer request that Jesus made. He said, here's the one prayer request. He said, you're going to ask me for all sorts of prayers. He said, I'm going to be the intercessory uh, prayer. Uh, you're going to bring your prayers. I'm going to bring those to God. Praise God for it. And Jesus says, let me make one prayer request. Ready? Here it goes. Pray you there for the Lord of the harvest. That he would bring forth labors into his harvest. Jesus said, I got one prayer request. You help me with mine, I'll help you with yours. And then we wonder why he doesn't answer our prayers. Well, are you useful to God? Okay, pastor, you're saying I'm useless? Yeah. (laughs) I, I mean, I didn't say it. He did. But you know, he's a patient keeper. So he doesn't just give up on you. Luke 13, look at verse 8. He doesn't just say cut it down. Look, again, that's not losing your salvation. That's just, I'm done with this guy. I'm done with this gal. It's not that I don't love him. It's that I'm not getting what I need from them. I mean, it's fine if they want to live their Christian life and one day die and go, but he's like, the Christian that I want to invest in, that I want to help in, that I want to resource, that I want to equip, they're producing fruit. They're the fruit-producing Christian. You say, what about the Christian that doesn't produce fruit? Well, here's what he says. Luke 13, verse 8. And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year till I shall dig it, till I shall dig about it and dung it. Say, so what does Jesus do with Christians who don't produce fruit? He digs it and he dungs it. You know what dung is? You know what I've learned? Is that sometimes God will take an unfruitful tree and he'll let a lot of dung into their life. You say, why? Because oftentimes Christians do not get right with God and do not get back into church and do not get serious about the things of God until God has a lot of bunch of crap into their lives. And he'll dig around it and he'll dung that thing and he'll say, put as much dung as you need to to see if we can get this thing to produce some fruit. And if it does, great. And if it doesn't, cut the thing down. And you say, what what would God do with a Christian who doesn't produce? He's going to dig it and dung it. You say, what does that mean? Doesn't sound good. I'll read one verse to you. You don't have to turn there. Zephaniah 1.17. With this idea of what it means to be dunged by God. And I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. Sometimes God looks down at a tree and he says, let's cut that thing down. Not losing your salvation. Let's just be done with it. I keep coming to this tree trying to get fruit, and it won't give me fruit. And Jesus, the patient keeper, says, let's dig it and dung it. Let's allow a lot of dung, a lot of crap. That's what he's saying. That's what the, the Greek says that word. That offends you. <laughs> a lot, let's just allow a lot of dung into their lives, and, and just let's, let's dung him up. See if that will get him back to church. See if that will get him back to reading his Bible. See if that will get him back to abiding in in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. See if that will get him right with God. Let's dig it and let's dung it. And he answered and said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well, because that's the ultimate goal. And if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father. Lord, thank you for this parable. And thank you for these applications that we can make to our lives. And like the nation of Israel failed to bring fruit, like some churches failed to bring fruit, some Christians can fail to bring fruit. And sometimes God has to dig around us and dung us to see if we'll produce something. And some Christians, they get cut down. They don't lose their salvation, but God removes his blessing. God removes his protection. God says, there's no point in blessing this individual. I'm not getting what I want. I'm not getting fruit. Lord, I pray that you would help us as individuals to realize that the main priority is to reproduce ourselves. Help us as a church never to take it for granted that the God's, God's blessing is upon us.
I do believe that God's blessing is upon this place. For the last 12 years, you've been faithful to us. But it's because we've done our best to produce fruit. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to continue to do that. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, Brother Moses, come up and lead us in a final song. Just want to give you a couple of reminders. On that note, we've got soul winning tomorrow at uh, 6 p.m. So be there or be done. And uh, we'd love for you to join us if you're able to Thursday, September.